Hello friends, may the peace of the living Christ be with you all and I can hear you as if an echo in the sanctuary uh, here this morning saying back to me and also with you. So I do hope that in this time of high anxieties you are finding the peace of Christ to be a reality for you and for those uh, that you're with, quarantined and otherwise. But uh, I'm glad to be able to, to be here and to offer something uh, for uh, worship along with uh, Joyce Muda, who offered uh, some of the, the prayer and liturgy for the service we had planned for today. Also with uh, Andrew Hudson and Julia Butler and Carol Grinch uh, offering some music. And we always love their music. And so I hope that you can enjoy that where you are. So I do have a sermon prepared. Um, I was thinking this morning uh, about our, the desert fathers and mothers who went away from the civilized world into monasteries uh, as a spiritual discipline. And uh, I think we are seeing imposed a kind of spiritual discipline and how appropriate to be in the season of Lent where we are taking on this fasting of uh, socializing as we so enjoy when we come together as a congregation. So like our desert fathers and mothers, uh, we are uh, kind of uh, gathering uh, in our homes and uh, with those we uh, live with, but not intentionally <laughs> as they did back then. But I, I just, that just brought to mind. And I do hope that in this time uh, when we're more uh, isolated and fixed uh, in our location that we can uh, mine for the value of reflection in that space and we're thinking of others who are uh, on the front lines and uh, trying to care for others who are already sick and uh, not just with the, uh, the COVID-19 uh, coronavirus but uh, in all the ways that we can get ill and uh, need assistance. So. Um, thank you for all those who, who are caring for others in that way, even as we care for each other where we are. So you're listening to a recording made on Sunday, March 15th, just after, uh, well, it's noon now as we record. And I'm standing uh, at a podium, uh, much like I do at the, at the pulpit on the typical Sunday morning to offer announcements and update you on scheduled meetings and events for the week ahead and later to offer a sermon. But today, none of you are seated in the sanctuary. It's a little echo in here, uh, except with Dick Dow, the faithful soul who regularly comes and records our services and uh, is uh, ominous, almost omnipresent uh, with uh, our audiovisual needs, he and Dave Atkinson so faithfully help us to do even this. Uh, Dick is here today helping us to do this. So uh, great applause, Dick, to you and, uh, and Dave on other Sundays for helping us with this. But uh, you're not seated here, and we're all learning the art of social distancing as a spiritual discipline to halt the aggressive coronavirus called COVID-19. It is one way to exercise what John Wesley called the general rules that he commended to his uh, gathering, his Methodist societies. And we have taken them up as a church, as United Methodists, and they are three. First, do no harm 
Secondly, do all the good you can. And third, stay in love with God and, of course, with one another. So doing all the good we can includes this recording and the emails and phone calls soon to follow as I and others attempt to contact each of you in the coming week. I hope you will do the same for those of your neighbors in the broader community who may need your compassion and practical assistance in coming days. Staying in love with God and one another encompasses the previous two general rules, but may also mean you'll take some time each day to read a favorite Bible story or a psalm, take a walk to commune a bit with nature, open your heart and mind to the presence of the Spirit of God in you, so that the promptings of grace and so the peace that passes understanding may have a healing and calming effect on you. Uh, calming anxieties, encouraging creativity for the, challenging, for the challenges of the day, and make available to you uh, the resilience and patience these days require. Please email, call, or text the church office or me as needs arise that require some assistance. And very possibly, we will be holding this pattern of uh, social distancing, including worship, a few weeks more as the coronavirus pandemic unfolds. Church leadership at every level is working to communicate and adapt to the changing circumstances we all face. And I mean that from the general church uh, to the bishop, district superintendents, pastors, lay leadership, we're all working to adapt. Today then, we are using this recording to provide some inspiration for worshiping in place. We are looking into live streaming technology so that we can worship together in real time via the internet in coming weeks, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Blessings to all of you. It's a privilege to be in service with you and in the way of Jesus. So again, we're all adapting as we need to uh, in response to the threat of coronavirus. Obviously, then, all the Lenten soup suppers on Tuesday evenings have been canceled. I want to thank uh, Matthew Wise and Julia Butler for offering to be interviewed uh, the next couple of weeks. We will certainly look to the weeks when we can hold interviews with them and uh, hear their wisdom and uh, share a bit about their faith formation. Youth group also canceled uh, until we can uh, see a time when we can reconvene in a healthy way. And uh, so we want to also pray for our parents and children who are having to figure out how to do childcare and work in these strange circumstances. Uh, those of you who are ill and rely on others to assist, we especially keep you in prayer uh, in this time too. So reach out if you need some assistance and let us know uh, how we can help if that's the case for you. The sermon today uh, continues the series I, have, uh, I began uh, the first Sunday in Lent uh, on the Beatitudes. Eugene Peterson, who translated uh, from the original Greek language uh, a version of the Bible he calls the message, talks about uh, the Beatitudes as those who are not just blessed, but he says lucky. Lucky, and we look at the characteristics of the Beatitudes, the pure in heart, the meek, and we wonder how can you be lucky when those are the characteristics that describe you. And so uh, each of us, uh, he says, uh, experience the Beatitudes even though we may not realize that that's what's going on. And these sermons are my attempt to help us see just how 
those Beatitudes are realities for us and that we can appreciate the perspective of God in them uh, once we become more aware of how they are present for us. So today's Beatitude is this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm thinking about how many of us have uh, issues with our vision, with our eyes, and being able to see well enough, certainly to drive, but even to, to get from uh, one place to the next, and what that uh, can be like when we're challenged with, say, cataracts or glaucoma or other issues of uh, vision, diseases of the eye. Cataract actually means waterfall. Uh, those of you who know I like word origins would find uh, in the dictionary, if it provides word origins, uh, that cataract means waterfall. And if you've had cataracts, you can appreciate kind of how a mist comes over your eyes, like you're standing near a waterfall and mist comes, uh, comes into your eyes and clouds how you see the rest of the world. And Jesus is saying, in part, this beatitude is for those who, well, they may not be able to see with their eyes, but they can see with their hearts God present in their lives and in the world. And what a blessing, how lucky, how lucky we are when we can do that. And so I want to talk a, a bit about that uh, today. Purify, pure in heart, Purity, where can we apply this idea of purity? Certainly we are striving for that as we wash our hands continually with the coronavirus going on. We want to be clean, have clean hands so that if we do make contact with others, then uh, the risk of, of transmitting uh, the virus is greatly reduced or eliminated. And so there's a lot of focus on that kind of purity, uh, keeping appropriate social distancing six feet or greater so that... Uh, Whatever air we're breathing doesn't also carry uh, the virus. So the, the dedication to be pure was a, certainly a religious occupation or preoccupation uh, for uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees in the time of Jesus. Uh, there were as many as 200 pages written on how to stay clean, ritually clean, uh, that also involved being physically clean. But when you really think about dirt, it's really just kind of matter that's maybe misplaced. It should be on the ground, but it's on our hands. Uh, I remember my grandfather worked with the Department of Transportation in Tennessee, and he had grease under his fingernails all the time from changing oil in the great uh, vehicles that did uh, road work. And so he was always cleaning his hands uh, so he wouldn't get oil everywhere. And... Uh, so there are lots of purity codes in Scripture uh, about how to stay clean. And I remember an elementary school teacher of me, Mrs. Quarles was her name, as I recall, who said, cleanliness is next to godliness. And that little motto could uh, be uh, kind of a bumper sticker for the Pharisees in the time of Jesus and for those who were really trying to, well, they, they felt dedicated to this uh, idea of let's do this out of honor for one another and out of honor to God. And then Jesus takes it uh, in a different direction and helps us to remember that all this preoccupation with 
cleanliness means nothing if love is not the motivation, is, is not in play uh, in all that we do. We remember that uh, this idea of connecting the pure in heart with seeing God is not new. The Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, uh, we recall Moses on the mountain and that he was not supposed to look directly at God because to look directly at God would be to die then. I'm not sure why that would be the case, but I have a suspicion that it was connected to idolatry. Um, the Hebrew people, as they moved across the wilderness, would come into contact with lots of different cultures. And most other cultures had their gods fashioned in some sort of clay uh, so that they could kind of worship their god with this, this clay. And um, so that uh, not, not being able to see God then would not allow the Hebrews then to form an image that they would worship. And uh, so most of what God does in the Hebrew Bible is uh, speaks. So the great Shema, the great, uh, or some say Shema, the great prayer of the Hebrew people is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's, a, it's an auditory experience that God speaks to us and we listen then uh, for God. But once we get to the New Testament, to the Christian uh, scriptures, then uh, the Greek influence is seen, and the Greeks were big on all sorts of uh, statuary, and uh, the eyes became a focus, so that um, we talk about the beatific vision, being able to see the beauty of God, and uh, to rely more on the eyes than on the ears, and if you're like me, uh, you learn best by what you see. And uh, so that, that uh, tradition, that uh, way of learning becomes uh, central in the New Testament. So I want to say a little bit about, uh, about this pure in heart and how that's connected to seeing God today. And that's more information than I typically provide in a sermon, but you're a captive audience with the recording, so I thought I'd give a little more uh, for you, kind of a little lesson uh, in the service of uh, a richer understanding of what I'll share now in the sermon. So where is your heart located? I know when we do Pledge of Allegiance or um, uh, go to the doctor, we put our hands next to our chest and feel for the beat that we call our heart. And uh, it's a complex though and very necessary organ uh, of the body. It has chambers, you know, the, the atria upper chambers and the ventricle lower chambers of the heart. And they beat ideally in synchronous sinus rhythm so that life-giving oxygen flows through our bodies and animates uh, our being. Now, some of you will recall um, that um, I have uh, spoken before about how the ancient Hebrew people thought of the human heart comprised of three uh, functions, uh, not, not chambers, but uh, of functions and each of them being uh, essential to a full, whole life. The intellect, which is thinking, the emotions we associate with feeling, and then the will, the intention or the doing. So thinking, feeling, acting. And in our everyday language, we express uh, that in different ways, those uh, uh, different functions. We talk about being wholehearted, 
where uh, everything is working in rhythm together. Brokenhearted, where maybe our feelings are fractured and we're not feeling uh, whole or together. Hard-hearted, uh, where it seems like our heart has stopped. We've, we've frozen the beating of our heart, we've become numb, maybe against an enemy, someone who's hurt us. Half-hearted, we're not really motivated. The will is not engaged. We may think about something or feel, but we don't really want to do anything. Heart of the matter we talk about, the essential thing that really needs attention. Someone is all heart, typically all feeling is uh, what we think. His heart just wasn't in it, we say, of people. Uh, not really, uh, again, motivated. And in the South, I often hear the phrase, well, bless your heart, um, it, which can be used in all kinds of ways, sarcastically, but also uh, as a way of, of uh, expressing pity for others. And all of these speak to some spiritual event at work in our very being. Now, there was a Greek philosopher, and you doctors uh, among us know the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates used uh, language about four of the humors, uh, fluids of the body, to categorize various conditions of mental and physical health of the human body, well-being. And we consider uh, how our behavior reflects our spiritual hearts. For example, if you take away the chamber of the spiritual heart, uh, any of those chambers, and we can imagine the corresponding result. So if I took out the chamber of the intellect, if that were missing, the feelings that we have would dominate our lives and uh, could immobilize us with the need to act in spite of, of uh, how we feel. Um, leave out feelings and we become analytical to the extreme. We start to show up in the world like Spock or or Commander Data from uh, the Star Trek uh, Next Generation series. We'd be joyless, humorless automatons without uh, feeling. Now, without our will, we would become permanent spectators to the needs and conditions of others. And so compartmentalizing any chamber of the heart impedes the fullness of life that is in us. We need the integrated functioning of all the chambers to become the fully alive children of God that we were called to be. And this is the background we need uh, to really appreciate what Jesus has to say about today's beatitude of the pure in heart being able to see God. Recall that the beatitudes were preserved because in them Jesus names the experiences all of us might encounter in our lives. And then surprisingly, he offers these experiences as blessed or even lucky uh, states of being and living in the world. Wells, they become wells or sources of life from which we live. They're not a goal to achieve. Uh, that is, you don't go seeking to be pure in heart in order to be blessed. Uh, they're not even a preset destination that, that you will be uh, pure in heart. You will be blessed then. Uh, neither of those apply. It is uh, an ongoing uh, awareness that we might find uh, as we seek to follow uh, in the way of Jesus. The Beatitudes serve as a uh, preface or a background to the teaching of, teachings of Jesus that then get, uh, he expounds on them in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to describe how people uh, relive that reality, the reality of the Beatitudes in the world. In the sermon, Jesus repeatedly declares, you have heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery or murder or swear an oath, but I say to you, 
And what does he say to us? He says, go to the deep wells. Go to the deep spiritual well, to the source of your being. Where dwells the Spirit of God at work in your soul? Live from that blessed place and you will fulfill the law and the prophets, not just the rituals, but you will fulfill it in your heart. You will see it come alive in the world around you. When our wills and emotions and mind are driven by the motivation and intention to love, the presence of God then becomes really undeniable. I really love the movie uh, Field of Dreams. You probably remember it with Kevin Costner and Ezra Earl Jones and Burt Lancaster even, one of the last movies he was in. One of the, of the more pivotal scenes of the movie happens when Timothy Busfield, who plays Kevin Costner's brother-in-law, he tells Costner to sell the family farm to avoid bankruptcy. He doesn't understand what Costner's character understands. Costner has avoided selling the farm because of this voice that speaks to him. Uh, and he hears it when he's out plowing the field, the cornfield. And the voice says to him, if you build it, he will come. And that, that phrase is repeated throughout the movie and it hangs as kind of a mystery. And we see that mystery unfold in that cornfield uh, where eventually there's a, a baseball field that he builds in, in the cornfield. And uh, he and his wife and daughter go out on these bleachers that he builds near the baseball field. And he watches players come out of the corn and play in that field. And uh, Busfield then comes by, and he can't see any of it. He doesn't see the field. He doesn't see the players. He, he thinks somehow Costner and his wife and daughter have gone off the deep end. They're looking at this field and can't make, he can't make heads or tails out of it. But then something shocking happens. Uh, Costner's daughter falls off of the bleachers and starts to choke on a, a bit of a hot dog, we discover later. And Burt Lancaster's character is a doctor. He's a, a young man on the field of dreams, but when he walks off the field, he comes into the current day as a, an, a senior uh, person, a man, and he's a doctor. And he is able then to dislodge the hot dog that's the culprit in uh, Costner's daughter's uh, being choked. So when Busfield witnesses this, this event of saving, suddenly he looks up and he can see the field and he can see the players. And there's this big aha moment where he witnesses this life-saving event and it becomes then life-saving for him. His disbelief, his lack of imagination, his internal reality sh shifts so that he is now able to see the players and the field of dreams that his brother-in-law built in the cornfield. That gift, that shift from not seeing to the aha is the unmistakable sign of discovery that God's Spirit makes possible in all of us. That shift makes the ordinary holy. It reveals divinity in the daily duties. Some time ago, archaeologists believed that if they could discover the special Holy Spirit words that Jesus spoke in his day, they could decipher that the, those coded messages and discover truly the mind of God. 
It was a kind of a Da Vinci's code mystery they were seeking to unravel. But what they found instead in their ancient local village landfills were these ordinary lists and receipts from business transactions of the, the residents in those villages. And it used just everyday language, which is the language Jesus used. No special lingo, just, well, really, lists, grocery lists even. There was no special Holy Spirit language, just the ordinary language that Jesus was able to use in extraordinary ways to point to God's presence in the world. The eyes of faith see God's presence, even in the mundane lists that we make, the paraphernalia of daily living, the ordinary embodies the exceptional. One father was surprised when his six-year-old daughter gave him a handmade birthday card with a quarter in it. An ordinary thing. And inside this birthday card that he picked up and he looked at it, read it, and he laughed as the quarter fell out of it into his hand and he offered it back to his daughter and he said, here honey, you keep it. Daddy has lots of quarters. But she was undaunted and she looked at him unflinchingly and she says, I know, but you don't have that one. That one cost a whole tooth. And it was a big one. The tooth fairy had given her that quarter and she saw in that quarter what it cost her. It was a, her tooth. It meant so much more than just being 25 cents. And she wanted to offer that to her father. That's seeing the exceptional, the extraordinary, the, the depth of significance in what appears to be nothing, just a little medium of currency. Perhaps more than others, children seem to have that purity of heart that provides the capacity to see God. After all, Jesus suggested that children are the model of what God's realm encompasses. Quite simply, they can see the world differently than we uh, than we do. We unlearn what children know, it seems, just naturally. Their imagination is unhampered by the ideas we've used uh, to train our minds to constrict the world and experiences that constrict the self and the soul. Uh, one other person was walking down the sidewalk and saw a little girl throwing a baseball up in the air and then catching it and uh, kind of playing by herself. That's the way the spectators saw it. And uh, he, he was kind of laughing at her doing that. And uh, he said, what are you doing? She says, I'm playing with God. And he says, well, how does that work? And she said, well, I throw the ball up to God and God throws it back and I catch it. That's, that's the broader imagination. That's the broader way. Uh, the children have access to, and these Beatitudes then have that within them, give us access to that kind of openness and imagination, the richness that is life-giving. Well, we can say, of course, she's naive, that's gravity at work, but why would we refuse her, her own understanding of her reality? If we provided a scientific understanding of her experience, would our description be more truthful than hers? No, I think not. Well, I'm going to close the sermon now um, so you can get back to whatever you're doing in this surreal time.
And it comes from Steve Hartman. You can actually see this clip on YouTube if you go in and type Steve Hartman and uh, look for um, uh, either Nora Wood, uh, who's a four-year-old, or uh, Dan. Uh, either of those will pull up the clip I'm, I'm talking about now. But Steve Hartman always has these heartwarming stories uh, that appear on the Friday edition of the CBS News at the end of that, of that episode. And one of uh, Hartman's favorite stories well, it took a bittersweet turn when uh, Dan Peterson was his name. He died at age 86. And uh, so On the Road tributes him because he overcame his personal grief thanks to a little girl who gave him a reason to smile again. Dan was uh, ready to die. He was grief-stricken. Um, but this little girl, age four, met Dan in his darkest days back in 2016. His wife had just died and he was severely depressed and out shopping for himself in Augusta, Georgia. That's where he met little four-year-old who just randomly reached out to him as uh, she was in the shopping cart her mother was pushing in a grocery store. And she demanded to hug him. And of course, he willingly gave in and let her do that, gratefully. And then she wanted a picture of him. She wanted her mom to take a picture of her hugging Dan. And Dan's lip began to quiver and his eyes teared up. And he said, you don't know what it has been. Uh, what it has been uh, it's been quite a while since I've been this happy. But that's not the end of the story. He was there for her kindergarten graduation some years later. And she was there to stroll his garden, and there were countless hugs along the way in the days that they spent together for the years uh, they shared before he died. Her mother said hugging Dan was the first thing she, her little girl did when she and her mother walked to his home, and it was the last thing she did when they left, which is precisely what she did the day before Dan died. So while he was living, Dan received thousands of letters from around the world. And when he died, letters of condolence poured in for little Nora. We, we can't wonder why, with so much else going on in the world, why people take time to do that. Nora's mother said, I think it was just humanity at its best to love and to be loved. And Hartman suggested it was a prescription for happiness that will get us through anything, including a coronavirus. <laughs> so may you know that kind of love, the blessing, the luckiness of the beatitude. May your hearts, may you find yourself in that place of openness where the, your vision is uncluttered from whatever else preoccupies you so that you can know the blessing, the presence, the love of God in this circumstance and in every circumstance. God be with you. God bless you. And thank you. Amen.